Welcome to the SJBC Sunday Morning Sermon. We hope you enjoy this message brought to you by our senior pastor, Dr. Richard Carver. For more podcasts, videos, and information on our church, please visit mysjbc.org. James is writing to Christian people who have been scattered across uh, the, the, the Roman Empire because of persecution. And wherever they have been scattered because of persecution, churches have popped up and developed. And he's writing to these churches. And so the problem that he's addressing is not just in one church, but it's in several churches where believers have come together to worship and and celebrate God. And what he does in this passage is he opens our eyes to the fact that, that there are three kinds of wars that Christians experience in our world. He's writing to Christian people. This is for you and for me. And he's quick to point out in his writing to tell us how we can stop these wars. And that's good news. Because none of us want to be in a war. We don't like them. Because injuries always result from a war. Whether they're emotional or physical or spiritual There's always some kind of financial, I mean, there's always some kind of injury. And James points out first that we need to recognize and understand that that oftentimes we're at war with each other in the church, Christian folk. And so he opens up in verse 1. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? The among you is Christian people. It's people just like us. People who gather together on Sundays and Wednesdays and Sunday evenings to worship and to teach and to learn and to celebrate the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so by asking the question, he's already confessing that there are fights and quarrels going on among believers. So we ask, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Jump to verse 11. He says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. (laughs) you would think that you wouldn't have to say that. You would think that among Christian people, you wouldn't have to tell them, don't speak badly about your other brothers and sisters. It's almost crazy that this is even in Scripture. But it is because that's what they were doing. They were speaking slanderously of other brothers and sisters. He says, anyone who speaks against a brother or against a sister speaks against the law and judges it. Because the law says, don't do that. So you're saying, you're judging the law. You're saying that God's law that says, don't speak ill of brothers and sisters is a bunch of baloney. I can ignore that part of the law. He's saying that you're speaking against the law. And he says, and in doing this, you're judging the law. When you judge the law, you're not even keeping the law. But you're sitting in judgment upon the law. So when we speak against a brother or sister, we are becoming judges against the law of God. And we are judging that the law of God is inaccurate. Well, is that dangerous or not? He continues on. He says, now don't be mistaken. There is only one lawgiver. 
And what he's implying is, you ain't it. <laughs> there was only one lawgiver and only one judge, and you're neither. The one who is able to save and to destroy. Now, we're able to destroy, certainly. We can destroy reputations. We can destroy testimonies. We can destroy ministries. We can destroy effectiveness. But saving, only God can do that. Only Jesus Christ can redeem the lost soul. He says, the one who is able to save and to judge, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? That's a wonderful and beautiful thing when brothers and sisters uh, in Christ get along. I mean, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing to see. And it's just awful when they don't. Matter of fact, it's a disgrace when brothers and sisters in Christ don't get along. Now, surely, brothers and sisters in Christ, people that have joined their hearts and minds together, says, yes, I want to be a part of this church body. Uh, yes, I want to be a part of this church family. And James has said, listen, nobody forced you all to be a member of the church. Nobody required that you be, a matter of fact, you're being persecuted because you're a member of the church. And yet you still found a way to, to join yourselves together. And brothers and sisters who have voluntarily committed yourselves together in a, a common bond of love, surely you ought to live together in love and harmony. But they weren't. These churches that he's writing to, they were experiencing severe persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. They know what it's like to see a brother or sister in Christ fed to the dogs, fed to the lions, set on fire, crucified, burned because their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're scattering across the Roman Empire to avoid this persecution. They're coming together in local New Testament churches in the diaspora of the church. And certainly, surely they could get along, but they weren't. And often in churches today, the problem still exists. There are church members that don't get along. Now, it shouldn't seem strange to us, really, because churches from the very beginning, early churches, they had struggles and troubles getting along. They found themselves frequently in disagreements. And if you read the letters that Paul wrote or, uh, or the, to the churches, you can see that these were New Testament people just exactly like us, fussing and fighting. Paul wrote to the Christian people, the church in Corinth, because they were competing with each other while they were in public worship services and public gatherings and public meetings. He wrote to the Galatian Christians in Galatia and said, listen, you all have got to quit biting and devouring one another. I mean, these were Christian folk hurting and damaging their own reputations, testimony, and other Christian people. He wrote to the church in, in, in Ephesus. He said, listen, y'all going to have to get your act together and to promote a spirit of unity. You all are in disunity. The church in Philippi, there were two women fighting, and their fight was so intense that it was affecting the whole of the congregation. And so Paul had to write a church to the letter of Philippi, calling out these two women by name. Can you imagine? <laughs> Kevin, your name called out saying, y'all are going to have to quit fussing and fighting because your all's fight is bleeding over into the rest of the church and creating problems in the church. So it shouldn't surprise us really that 
to, to understand that, that churches, even in the early church, had their share of disagreements. But that's not how it should be. Paul and James are advising us that this stuff might be going on, but this is absolutely not the way it should be. What you're seeing and experiencing, you Christians that are scattered across the Roman Empire, what you're doing is exactly what you should not be doing. Now, for us as contemporary believers, we can look in on the problem that was uh, persistent among the, the scattered Christians around, uh, among the Roman Empire, and we can learn. We can learn how best to avoid these kind of situations because it's healthy for the church to be in harmony. It's healthy for the church to not be quarrelsome and fussing and fighting. Now, apparently, uh, the believers that James wrote to were at war with each other over positions in the church. They wanted to be teachers and leaders. And they were fussing and fighting over who's going to be the teacher and who's going to be the main leader. Who's going to be the head honcho? Who's going to be in charge of this organization? Who's going to lead the way, set the course, chart the course, and get us there, move us along? And the church was fussing and fighting over who was going to be the leader. They'd come together to study the Word of God. And as a result, there was not much edification, but there were a whole lot of arguments and lots of strife among these Christian churches, New Testament churches, just exactly like ours. It was, a, it was a mess. Everybody thought their ideas were the only right ideas. Everybody thought that my way is the only right way to get things done around here. And so y'all need to get in line with my ways and do what I'm saying because everybody else's ways are wrong. And the problem was you had four or five people in the church saying the same thing. It's my way. Oh, no, it's my way. And they were fussing and fighting. And selfish ambition ruled their meetings, not spiritual submission. Now, we would, if we were to read this in a book, we would think that's awful, wouldn't we? We would think, how could a church ever be a church if this is going on in their church? I mean, we would look at, if we read this in a newspaper article, we would think, oh my, we would be shocked. How could a church ever do that? Well, here we find it in the Word of God, that this was happening in a church. And the saints of God in this church, the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the people that said, yes, Lord, I believe I surrender my heart and life to you. They were speaking evil of one another and judging one another. And it's an example of the tongue being used in the wrong way that we saw, taught about a week or so ago. Christians are not to speak evil in a spirit of rivalry and criticism. Now, if we discover a truth about a brother or sister, and that truth is harmful, the example here is that, that we should cover it with love and not go out and repeat it. If a member has sinned, what we can gather from this is we should go to them personally and try to win them back. Don't try to beat it out of them. Love it out of them. Now, it doesn't mean that they'll repent, but James is telling us that we at least got to try. We've got to make a valiant effort. James wasn't forbidding evaluating people here. In verse 4, he's going to do that. He's going to evaluate them pretty sternly. We get to, to verse 4, he's going to come right out and call them adulterers. And so he's not telling us that we can't 
uh, evaluate people. Christians are to have discernment. Jesus told us we are to look at the fruit of people's lives to evaluate and discern whether or not that they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're taught in Scripture to test the spirits. But what he's doing here, he's telling us that we, have, we cannot act like God and pass judgment. We can evaluate, but let God do the judging. Examine our own lives first before we try to help other people's. Because the truth is we never know all the facts. We never know all there is to know about a situation. We never know the motives that are at work in a person's heart. Because we can't see that, but God can God knows what's going on in a person's heart. So to speak evil of a believer and then to judge a believer, to take the place of the judge, to sit in judgment upon the law on the basis of partial spiritual evidence or partial any kind of evidence is to sin against them and against God. Because James says, you are now judging God because you're sitting in judgment upon the law. And I'm going to tell you, folks, that's a bad place to be. Because we cannot judge God. He's sovereign. He's the chief of all things and everything. We're not called to be judges. James makes it clear that God is the only judge. He's the only lawgiver. And thankfully, what we know about God is that though He is the lawgiver and that God is the judge, He's patient. Thank God. Thankfully, He's patient. He's understanding. And His judgments are always just and always holy. So we can leave any matter in His hands. He's very capable of taking care of any and all situations. So James says that that sometimes we're at war with other people. And so not only are we sometimes find ourselves at war with other people, but James says, listen, sometimes we're at war with ourselves. We have a war raging against our own person. He picks up uh, in verse 1, the last part, speaking about fights and quarrels. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So we have a battle within ourselves. We battle with other people. We battle with ourselves. We fight and quarrel with ourselves. He writes that you desire... But you do not have. So you kill. Well, not, you don't kill people, but you kill the unity. You kill the fellowship. You kill the sweetness of the Spirit. You kill the obedience. You kill testimonies. You kill friendships. He says, You can't have what you want, so you start killing. Now, We would never imagine that happening in a church. But it was happening to the churches that James was writing to. People weren't getting their way. The war was really on the inside. And so they started hurting other people. Hurting ministries. Hurting testimonies. All in an effort to get their way. He says, you desire but you do not have and so you kill. You covet. I want what they have. I want the influence they have or think that they have. I want the influence in the church. And remember, this is in the context of the church. I want the position that they have. I want to stand up on the platform. I want to work back there. 
I want to be a deacon. I want to be a trustee. I want to be an influential Sunday school teacher. In their, I, I, want to, I, I want and I want. He says, you covet, but you cannot get what you want. And so you quarrel and you fight outside because of what's going on inside. We're fighting with ourselves. He says the real problem is you don't have because you're not asking God. And when you ask, when you do ask God, you don't get what you ask for because you ask with wrong motives. That's wrong praying. He says that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, the essence of sin is selfishness. If you distill it down, sin is just selfishness. I want what I want, and I don't care about anybody else. I, I want what I want. We saw it in Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve wanted what they wanted. They wanted God's wisdom. They wanted the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. They wanted. And so they were selfish and wanted what they wanted, and they disobeyed God because they wanted to eat off of that tree. In Joshua chapter 7, I mean, there's an extensive buildup in the book of Joshua when the, the nation of Israel goes to claim the promised land. And the first city they encounter is Jericho, and they have a phenomenal victory. Phenomenal victory. And God says, take whatever you want. Plunder the whole city. You can have it all. They go to another little city called Ai. Now, Ai is not a very big city. They had to fight that city. They don't send all the troops. But in between the Jericho battle, and the, which was a huge battle, and the Ai battle, a fellow named Achan does something. I'm sorry, I take that back. God said, everything in Jericho is dedicated to me. You can't have it. I told you wrong on that. Let me clarify. Everything in Jericho is dedicated to me. You cannot have it. Well, Achan said, hey, I don't care what God says. I want some of it. So he, he stole some wealth, some money. He stole a piece of material and a chunk of precious metal buried in his tent. Thought he'd gotten away with it. Stolen from God. So they went from this great big battle with Jericho where everything was dedicated to God. And they said, now when y'all go to Ai, but they never got there. This little old town of Ai whooped the snot at all the Israelites because in Joshua chapter 7, Achan was selfish. And Achan's selfishness, his sin, his stealing of what belonged to God caused Israel to be defeated and they lost that battle. Now often what we do is we camouflage our religious quarrels under this disguise of spirituality. We proclaim to take the high road and we camouflage our attacks, our killing as something spiritual. We proclaim, oh, we're taking the high road. We're taking the righteous road. And we become like Miriam and Aaron in the Old Testament who complained about Moses' wife. And God brought judgment on them. But what they were really envious of was Moses' authority. They wanted to be in charge. Or we act like James and John who asked for special seats in the kingdom. You'll remember 
They, they asked Jesus, who can we sit at your right and can we, or their mother asked, can we sit at your right, my one son at your right and one son at my left? And they were asking for special seats in the kingdom. What they were really asking for was recognition today. I want to be recognized today. Tell everybody today what it's going to be like for me in your eternal kingdom. I want you to announce to everybody. Selfish desires are dangerous things. They lead to wrong actions. They lead to wrong praying. And that wrong praying leads to unanswered prayers. When our praying is wrong, our whole Christian life is wrong. Because God stops answering. He stops intervening. See, the purpose of prayer is not selfish. The purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven. The purpose of prayer is to get God's will done on earth. And we forget that. Remember in the model prayer, Matthew 6, when Jesus taught us how to pray? He said, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But if you think about our praying, our praying is often camouflaged. And it's really, we're praying for our will to be done in heaven and then trickle down onto earth. Wrong actions come from dangerous praying. And selfish living and selfish praying always lead to war. And the truth is, if there's a war going on the inside of us, ultimately it's going to trickle out and that war is going to be visible on the outside of us. Because from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. From the abundance of the heart, we live our life. Whatever's on the inside eventually is going to work its way on the outside. Now everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to hear it. Everybody's going to smell it. Everybody's going to notice it. And the reality is that, that the problem is going on in our hearts, in our own lives. Often people are at war with themselves because of selfish desires. And they're usually the most unhappy people. They never enjoy life. They, instead of being thankful for the blessings they do have, they complain about the blessings they don't have. Facebook is famous for that. You see everybody going on trips and buying new cars and getting new this and doing new that and new relationship here and new job there. We begin to look at what everybody's got. And we think that that's their whole life. Everybody out there is getting what they want. Everybody's living a grandiose life. They're all getting this and getting that. And we look in on Facebook and when we see little snippets of people's lives and we think that's the summation of their whole life and we begin to complain about the blessings that we don't have instead of thanking God for the blessings that we do have. That's an awful predicament to be in. Now, this was going on in the church back then and they didn't have Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. I mean, they didn't have those things. Can you imagine how it's compounded today since we have these tools? Oh my goodness. I'm going to tell you the church today is in worse shape than the church back then. Because we've created new sins. We have sins today that they did not have back then. I mean, there, we, the general sins of lust and covetous and murder and still exist. But we've got creative in the ways that we can lust. We've got creative and created and envisioned new ways that we can murder and hurt and harm and maim other believers. We've carried it to the next level. That's because sin grows. People that are in this situation, 
They don't get along with other people because they're always envying other, what other people have. They're always looking for that magic something. The next thing that'll change their lives. And, and this is it. And it'll last for two or three days, three or four weeks. This is the magic bullet that's going to fix me and I'm going to be happy for the rest of my life. And that'll last for a little while, but then that wears off and they need the next new magic bullet, new magic pill, new magic thing that'll change their lives. And it'll never work because the problem is not in the, in the solution. It's not in that magic thing. The problem is fixing the heart. And when you fix the heart, all these other things fall into line. So James says that we're at war with ourselves. We're at war with other people. We're at war with ourselves. And then he says, hold on, but let me tell you what. Sometimes we find that we're at war with God. Now that is a real stupid thing to do. Because that's a battle that we can never win. You can't wage war against a supreme being and think we're going to win. James points out, some things about God. He makes an assessment. He makes a judgment. He looks at our lives and he's looking at the lives of these Christians that are scattered because of the Roman persecution. These are Christian people. And he says, you bunch of people in those churches are adulterers. Now I'm sure they received that with love and kindness. I'm sure that when they read that part of the letter, they were like, oh, thank you, James, for pointing that out, that we're adulterers. Now he's not talking about adulterers in the marital sense between a husband and wife. He's talking about spiritual adultery. And I'm sure that they were just as happy to learn that he recognized and called them out for being adulterers, but he does. He says, you adulterous people, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't you know, <laughs> this is rhetorical, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Enmity against God? War against God? Therefore, any one of you Christian people out there who chooses to be a friend of the world, let me tell you, you need to understand that your friendship with the world makes you become an enemy with God. Have you ever thought about a Christian person being God's enemy? Remember, James is writing to Christian people. How can a Christian, how is it possible that a Christian, people just like you and me, I mean, they're people just like us that James is writing to. There's no difference between us and them. I mean, we believe and serve the same Lord Jesus Christ. We're same, part of the same kind of New Testament church. They have the same kind of polity that we have, similar. How is it that, you, that we could become an enemy with God? Now, our spiritual antennas ought to be going up right here because that's something we don't want to be. We don't want to be God's enemy. He says, or do you think, in verse 5, or do you think Scripture says without reason... And listen to this. God jealously longs for the Holy Spirit that lives inside you. God jealously longs for the Spirit, Ephesians 4, the Spirit that He sealed you with when you accepted Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. 
the seal that guarantees your inheritance in heaven. He says he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us. Now he's asking a question here, but there's a mountain of theology right here. All believers together in common, because he says us. All believers together in common have an indwelling of the Holy Spirit because we know Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. And because we know we have the common indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us, because we have accepted Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, it makes God long for us. He draws us to Him because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's what He wants to do. That's what Scripture teaches. But we've become adulterers and we're God's enemy. And so since we've become spiritual adulterers and God's enemy, God longs to draw us to Him because we have the Spirit inside of us, but He can't do it even though we're His children because we're His enemy. Now, that's an awful predicament to find yourself in. That's where the Christian believers were that James is writing to. Not all of them. But in general, he's writing this letter telling them, you all are being spiritual adulterers. You're, you're becoming God's enemy. and He wants to draw you to himself, but he can't because you're his enemy. And so he says in verse 6, but he gives us more grace. Now, what we deserve is more discipline. Because we're his enemy. Because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in each of us. But we're being spiritual adulterers. And so we deserve judgment. But he gives more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud. Or the selfish. The primary sin. God opposes the sinful but shows favor to the humble. He says, so in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Well, how do you submit? You bow your knee and confess, Lord, I have been searching only to satisfy me and me only. I don't care about anybody else, anything else. I've been wanting what I want, regardless of how it hurts other people. God, I, in doing so, I have become a spiritual adulterer. I'm far from you. I want to get back to you. It's John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's written to Christian people too. When John wrote that, he was writing to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in Rome. He wasn't writing to lost people. Here's a shocker. Every New Testament letter, except for maybe Luke and Acts, is written to, lost, I mean, to save people. Now Luke and Acts was written to Theophilus to convince Theophilus to become a Christian. If you go read Luke chapter 1, and Luke wrote Luke and Acts. But all the other books were written to Christian people to encourage them in their faith, to encourage them in their walk. All the New Testament books are written to Christian people. All of them. These are for us. He says, submit yourselves to, then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, the reverse of this is also true. If you don't resist the devil, he's going to run to you. He's going to look you up, find you, call you on the phone and say, hey, I'm coming over. 
Because since you're God's enemy, since he's wanting to draw you to him and he can't because you're God's enemy, let's go party. I'm going to take you farther than you ever thought you'd go away from God. Give me an inch and I'm going to take a mile. Give me a mile, I'm going to take your whole life. Can't take your eternity. But boy, I can sure mess things up. Let's go for a ride together. And you know what we dinglings do? Okay. <laughs> sure. You drive. That's what we do. And God says, when you do that, you become my enemy. He says, so you know what? Here's what you ought to do. Knowing the devil will flee if you draw near to me. God says, come get my car. He says, come on over here. He says, come near to God. <laughs> and look what he does. God will come near to you. What that means is, is when we come near to God, we quit being his enemy. That's a good thing. Come near to God, he'll come near to you. And then he says, fix your life. Straighten things up. Wash your hands because they're dirty. You've been touching things you ought not be touching. You've been doing things you ought not be doing. You're touching and doing things that Christian people ought not be doing. So wash your hands, you sinners. Oh, my. And purify your hearts. You've been thinking things that you shouldn't be thinking. You've been watching things you shouldn't be watching. You've been saying things you ought not be watching. You've been participating in things that have affected your heart that Christians ought not, not be doing. So purify your hearts. And then he says, fix your thinking, you double-minded. It's your responsibility. You've been thinking about things that you ought not be thinking about. You've been allowing and introducing things into your mind and open your door to Satan in ways that Christians ought not do. So fix your double-minded thinking. Fix your head. Fix your heart. Fix your life. Fix your body. And he says in verse 9, Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. In other words, what he's saying is you better fall on your knees and cry out to Holy God because your life is a mess. You're one of His children and you're an adulterer and you better get things right or it's going to cost you dearly. So grieve and wail and mourn and then plead for God's grace and mercy to fall upon your life and to forgive you for your sins. Now that's some preaching right there, folks. And this is what James says to Christian people. The root cause of nearly every war, whether it's internal or external, is rebellion against God. At the beginning of creation, there, there, there was perfect harmony. But sin came into the world and this led to conflict. And guys, I'm going to go into high gear because i got five minutes. And we're going to go to point five, page six. He tells us that sin is lawlessness and lawlessness is rebellion against God. He tells us that we have three enemies out there that we must not socialize with if we don't want to become God's enemy. And so listen to what he says. He says that believers must not socialize with the world. Well, the world for James means human social society apart from things that are God. Don't socialize with the world. 
We call it social media. Social media, we need to understand, is worldly media for the most part. The whole system of things in our society is anti-Christ and anti-God. Almost everything out there. Abraham was a friend of God, but Lot was a friend of the world, and it cost him. Friendship with the world, James compares to adultery. That when we're friendly socializing with the world, that we are spiritual adulterers. The believer, we're married to Christ. Folks, Christ gave his life. We're the bride of Christ. We ought to live faithful to him. We ought to live like we're the bride of Christ. And stop being spiritual adulterers. The, the world's the enemy of God. And whoever wills to be the friend of the world cannot be the friend of God, even if we're saved. Because he's calling saved people spiritual adulterers. They don't go together. He says you can't socialize with the world, then you ought not be socializing, being friendly with the flesh. The flesh refers to our old nature that we inherited from Adam and Eve. We, we're prone to sin. We can't help it. We're born with it. But flesh is not the body. Our body is pretty much neutral because our body, we can either use it to bring glory to God or we can use our body to glorify the flesh. So our body's kind of neutral. That means that we get to choose which way it leans. And if we feel ourselves leaning to the fleshly side, then straighten up and lean the other way because we ought to be leaning to things that are spiritual. And because when we do that, we're yielding to Christ. I mean, we're, we're, we're yielding to God, but when, we, when, when, when a person yields to Christ, we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, a change happens. And we become a new creature, a new nature within us. But for some reason, God chose not to renew, remove our old nature until after death. We carry our old nature until we die. So that means that we're new people, but we still have a, a hook in old Adam, a hook in old Eve that pulls us back. And our old nature is neither removed nor changed. That's why Paul says you got to beat it out of you. Paul says, I beat it out of me. Uh, he didn't mean he took up a bat, but he's talking about spiritual beating, spiritual surrender. And for this reason, there's a battle within us. And living for the flesh grieves the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. And living to please the old nature means that we declare war against God. So James says you ought not do that. He says the believers ought not socialize with the devil. Now the world is in conflict with the Father. And the flesh fights against the Holy Spirit and the devil opposes the Son of God. Now, pride is Satan's great trick, his great sin, and one of the, the chief weapons in his warfare against the saint and against the, against the Savior is pride. God wants us to be humble. Satan wants us to be proud. I mean, we, we can understand that there's a difference here, but God wants us to depend upon his grace while Satan wants us to depend upon ourselves. And when we begin to do that, we begin to socialize with the devil, and that makes us God's enemy. So we know that our three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the, we know that these enemies are left over from our old life of sin, but Christ has delivered us from them. But even though He's delivered us from them, they still attack us. But even though we're still at war and the, they still attack us, we can find victory. And so... James closes out this passage telling us how to find victory. 
He says that we find victory over our enemies by submitting to God. Unconditional surrender. It's the only way to complete victory in our life is to surrender to God. If there's any area of our life that we keep back from God, then that's where you can expect to be fighting battles. And I mean wars all the time going on, never stopping. And that's because you're saying, God, don't come here. This is mine. I can control this. You can do everything else, but don't come over here. Well, over here is where you're going to be fussing and fighting all the time. And it starts within, and then it works its way out, and we all see it. You can't hide it. He says, to overcome your enemies, you've got to submit. Second, to overcome our enemies, he says, draw near to God. We draw near to God by confessing our sins and asking for his cleansing. And then we become more like God. And the more like God we are, the nearer to God we are. And the nearer to God we are, graciously, the God draws near to us. And that happens when we deal with the sin in our lives that keeps him away. Because God won't share us with anybody. He longs for us to be near him. He longs for the spirit that's within us. Third, James tells us to overcome our enemies, to win the war. We've got to humble ourselves before God. That means just go face down. Bend your knees and get on your face and bow in the presence of holy God. You know, it's possible to submit outwardly, to physically get down on our knees and surrender to God and yet not be humbled inwardly. God hates the sin of pride and He'll discipline the believer until they're humbled. And that's a mark of true humility facing the seriousness of sin, and then dealing with our disobedience. Passages like this in James are tough to hear. I, I tell you, they're hard. They're hard because they're real life. Our instruments and, and Jacqueline are, are coming. And, and when we hear about this kind of stuff, man, it hurts our feelings. It, it, it hurts. But it's all part of the process of, of making us more like Christ. Because when we hear this kind of stuff out of James and we walk away and say, oh, fool, y'all baloney. Whew, that's inviting trouble. When we hear these kind of messages and read this kind of passage, it ought to motivate us to want to surrender and say, oh, God, forgive me. I don't want to be your enemy. I want to be your friend. That's why we have invitations. Invitation is not for me. It's not for Jacqueline. Honestly, we don't give a hoot. If you walk down, you do. If you don't, you don't. We're offering this so that you can come and approach holy God and not leave this room until you get things right with God. Because here's the deal. If you say, hang on, God, I'll wait until I get in the car, you're saying yes to the devil. Because Scripture says right now is the time of salvation. Now it's not when you get in your car getting alone. I know we are all prideful. We don't want anybody to know. That's exactly opposite of what God, we're going to, God bless us. We're going to sing him invitation. I'm not suggesting that you do have a spiritual decision to make, but if you do, now is the perfect time to make it as we sing.